Coming up on Launch Stories. If I have five incredibly successful people, multi-billionaires, right? Like 70% of them went to Cornell, like ridiculously successful, top 100 in the world. I wouldn't have those connections because the common ground we have is, oh, Joe went to Cornell, he must be okay. Like in the neighborhood, you would say, oh, that guy went to jail. He didn't rat on anybody. He must be okay. In the business world, it's like, it's a litmus test. So is it easier to not go to college? Sure. There's a lot of things that are easy. That doesn't make it right. You need to learn how to learn. Welcome to Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. I'm your host, Zoltan Vardy. The Launch Stories podcast gives you a taste of what it takes to launch a global startup. Listen to founders share their personal ups and downs, their professional wins and losses, and the lessons they've learned along the way to building an international company. You'll also hear from accelerators and investors that support entrepreneurs along their journey around the world and what they think is the recipe for startup success. So join me on Launch Stories, get inspired and learn the ingredients of a successful global business. My guest today is Joe DeSena, founder and CEO of Spartan, the world's leading endurance sports brand with a community of over 10 million athletes globally. After a career in the financial industry, Joe fled Wall Street to live on a remote farm in rural Vermont. This is where he discovered a passion for adventure races and endurance events and decided to launch the first Spartan race in 2010. Spartan has since grown to encompass 300 obstacle course races held each year in 40-plus countries. Meanwhile, Spartan, the company, has diversified its holdings to include six distinct brands that together make up this global fitness and wellness powerhouse. Joe has shared the Spartan mentality through multiple New York Times bestselling books and several U.S. TV programs, including the recently launched No Retreat Business Bootcamp broadcast on CNBC. In today's chat, Joe and I will talk about how he built Spartan into a global brand with raving fans and the role that persistence plays in building a successful life and business. Let's listen to Joe's launch story. Hey, Joe, it's awesome to have you on. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I, I um I can't get anybody to talk to me, so it's always exciting when somebody. <laughs> well, ju- judging from the the hours of video that I saw about you online, I can't believe that's true. I'm sure you're one of the hottest uh, guests right now in the uh, in certainly in your industry, but uh, but broadly speaking, in entrepreneurship. So uh, so it's exciting to have you here with us. You've built a business on the back of basically getting people to crawl through mud, climb over walls, jump through fire often while feeling incredibly uncomfortable and exhausting themselves both physically and mentally. I wouldn't call this the recipe for an easy sell, certainly. Yet, literally millions of people have signed up to this experience, uh, this discomfort, many of whom are absolutely devoted to experiencing it over and over again. I speak somewhat from experience as a Spartan racer myself. Why is that? Why do people sign up to take part in the Spartan race? You know, you, you just triggered a thought. Last night I had my children, my, my boys and their friends on a Zoom call with a couple of folks that work for us who are um, trying to design a new piece of merchandise. And I wanted to teach the kids um, what it's like to have a focus group and, and to understand uh, an idea, the ideation, uh, the product development, the feedback loop. And yeah, when you said what you just said, I realized that I didn't use the traditional methodology in doing that when I started Spartan. Certainly, if I had put mud 
on the ground in Rockefeller Center and done a focus study, it would have failed miserably. <laughs> probably, no probably wouldn't have passed the test, <laughs> but it worked nonetheless. Why, why do you think that is? Well, here's what I think. And, and before I answer that, let's think about this. And many times I found racing myself to be incredibly transformational, incredibly empowering, incredibly healthy. Here was the biggest thing I found. I never understood. I watched Rocky when I was a kid, Rocky Balboa. Uh -huh. And I never understood why would a boxer go in and out of shape? Like, like if they were in shape and they looked like Apollo Creed right before the fight, why wouldn't they stay in that kind of shape? Why would they fall out of shape and then have to fight their way back into shape? And I realized with myself, oh my God, you lose motivation. It's hard to stay uh -huh. that focused and that healthy all the time. But when you have a fight on the calendar and you're going to get your ass handed to you in front of millions of people, that motivates you to go to the gym and eat well and go to bed early. And what I found with the races I was doing was that was my big boxing match. Uh -huh. Every time I had a date on the calendar, it was forcing me to fight for a six pack, right? <laughs> to, to go to bed earlier. And and so I didn't do any focus groups. I didn't do testing. I didn't put mud, like I said, in Rockefeller Center. We hated it. <laughs> I can't imagine a boxer enjoys getting punched in the face when he's in the ring or she's in the ring. But when it's over, they feel proud of themselves. Their heart was pumping. Uh, there was blood circulation. There's all kinds of endorphins being released in the brain. And it's somewhat addictive. So I put my toe in the water and I said, I wonder if we could put on a race. And Oh my God, that was my first experience with uh, the event industry, which I would recommend anybody listening, don't get into the event industry because <laughs> once, once, I once I decided to take the plunge and announce that we were going to have an event on a certain date, let's, let's call it July 4th just for fun, you're going to spend, let's, let's say $500,000 to put on that event, whether one person shows up or 1,000 people show up. You've made a commitment. Yeah. That ship is going to sail on July 4th. You can't cancel the event because then the consumers and potential consumers would say, we can't trust this company. We don't know if the events yeah. will ever happen, right? The second you put that date on the calendar, pressure begins, kind of like the pressure the consumer feels to train and get a six pack yeah. before that, right? Or the boxer feels. So I had this tremendous pressure and it forced us to be successful. So it really comes down to having this really clear focus and commitment and self-discipline to reach some sort of seemingly difficult objective, no? I mean, it's it's about the event business, but also for the people who are participating in, in these type of obstacle course races. Yeah, I think it's a bigger, I, let's fly at 100,000 feet. I think it's a bigger conversation about entrepreneurship. I think number one, all of us as human beings, we need dates on the calendar in order to force us to do hard stuff. Hard stuff we don't wanna do, we're not designed to do it. Our legacy hardware and software in our brains actually tell us not to do it because any exertion of extra energy is life-threatening. That, that's what our brains tell us. Like, don't exert extra energy. You may die. So it's an internal fight all day, every day to do hard work. But having a date on the calendar that's incredibly hard and scary help push back against the brain and do hard stuff, number one. Number two, as an entrepreneur, you now have an organization that is a collective of a bunch of people who are resisting doing the hard work. And, but now you have a date on the calendar. And so it's forcing you to do, to sand shovel and really dig in and, and drive towards an objective, which is July 4th, that race is going to happen, guys. We have to have a thousand people there. We're going to go broke. <laughs> We're not going to be able to make payroll. So now, so now everybody's focused 
on, on doing that. And so I think, why do you think it worked? You know, I think if this was 150 years ago, it wouldn't have worked. Uh, there was no need for it. People didn't need a nudge to do hard stuff. Yeah. Life was hard. Trying to build a railroad across the country while you were getting, you know, arrows shot at you <laughs> and bears were eating you and people were dying of disease. Like what we needed was more couches and television and Netflix. We didn't need more hard. Yeah. Right. But in the first world, for most of us, it's become so easy and placating to that weak legacy brain that I think somewhere deep down inside, our, our bodies know, our brains know that like, we got to do something hard today. Take the stairs, do something. And so we became a beacon, unknowingly. Again, I didn't have this plan when I started. We became a beacon for, for those people that have those urges deep down inside to go do something hard and feel alive. The good news is, like you said, there's 10 million people I've been able to graduate through the system. The bad news is it's only 10 million people. There, there's a lot more of us that need it. I can speak from my own personal experience, and perhaps this actually illustrates some of the things you just talked about is, you know, I, I looked in the mirror in Christmas 2017. I thought, man, I got to get in shape. And, you know, the magic of digital marketing, uh, somebody at Facebook heard me because I got a Spartan Race ad come up on my mobile phone literally two minutes later <laughs> after I said this. And I thought, you know, what the hell? And literally, I just clicked and bought and just thought, you know, it was April something. I'm going to start training. And so literally, I, I hired a coach. I went out. I started training. I ended up doing five races, so four uh, sprints and a super. And, um, and you know what was interesting? Because the initial motivation was I need to get in shape. But actually, what happened is that as I shared the fact that I was preparing for this, I had the medals. I posted on social media, all this stuff. The incredible um, admiration that came from people in my circle of friends. Because, you know, I told my friends about it, like, you're crazy, man. You're almost 50 years old. What are you doing? You know, you're going to climb over walls and walk through mud and all that crap. And, and it was actually interesting. So it became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that you got the positive feedback and then you started doing it. Unfortunately, COVID happened, right? Races were canceled. My motivation dropped. And what I actually did was I realized that I need to get back on the horse. And so it was this January that I posted, I'm going to do my Spartan race. I'm actually participating in one on April 24th, which actually led me to eventually reaching out to you. So it is actually interesting how you have that psychology of overcoming your own limitations, but also, you know, doing something that's good for you and also gets a bit of admiration from people around you. It's really interesting to me, like, how did that happen to you, right? You just got that Facebook post at that right, ex that exact moment. And you know, I just heard the other day that only 21% of American children between like 15 and 24 years old would have any chance of qualifying for the military based on a physical assessment. And, um, and so I, like my, my passion as an American, as, as, a, as a global citizen, is to just get people healthy. So I'd love to crowdsource from folks like what would tickle them? What would yeah. get them to, to take a plunge. And by the way, I would give free entries. I don't really, it's not yeah. even about that. Yeah. Um, and it's a good case study on like, cause if you can get somebody to crawl under barbed wire five times, like you did, <laughs> you could certainly, certainly get them to buy whatever product or service you're trying to sell. Yeah. Right? Actually, I'm curious, what percentage of your, uh, customers call them are sort of hardcore endurance athletes like you? I mean, I know you've done like 50 ultra races and, you know, 14 Ironmans in a year and some crazy stuff like that versus people like me, which are like, you know, middle-aged guys or, or women who kind of feel that they have something left in the tank and they want to prove themselves. Do you have a sense of what that split is? Believe it or not, the majority, like 80 plus percent are just regular Joes and Janes that somehow 
somehow want to prove something to themselves. And that day that they do the Spartan or the Tough Mudder or whatever it may be, they might as well be on the Olympic stage. Like that is their <laughs> day, right? They're a Navy SEAL for a day. And by the way, the psychology you guys have of, of having people, when you run through the finish line, having a medal put on your neck is fantastic. Like that's that's a great reflection of exactly what you just described. Yeah, I want to even take that experience up a notch because that's so rewarding for those folks that, you know, in the early days, I don't know if you know this, in the early days, I would have two gladiators at the finish line. Uh -huh. You would have trained for three months. You would have been scared out of your wits. You would have finally run through the whole thing. You could barely come up with one more gasp of air. And then two gladiators would be standing there trying to knock you down and not let you through oh, the Oh, really? Oh, okay. So they were actually physically engaging with the, uh, the uh, race. And what happened, there's a, an example of editing and pivoting on your product mix. Once we became a bigger company and I had to have a whole legal department, a general counsel and insurance and all these <laughs> things, we were like, you can't have you know, these big guys knocking people down. <laughs> It, it added so much to the experience. I'm so annoyed we had to eliminate that obstacle. Well, I guess it's some of the evolution of business, right? You start with uh, just an idea, and then you got lawyers telling you can't have gladiators at the finish line. I know. <laughs> I know. It's really frustrating. So listen, I, I know you you started your entrepreneurial journey at a very young age, right? You built a multi-million dollar pool cleaning business when you were a teenager. You ran that up to your early 20s. Um, you left that path for some years during the first part of your career on Wall Street. But eventually you went back and you launched your own trading firm. You, you started Spartan. Did you always know that you'd become an entrepreneur? One of my best friends in the neighborhood I grew up in would always say to me for years, like, Joe, you had an advantage. Your father would always talk business to you. And I, it would go in one ear and out the other. I didn't know what he was talking about. And now that I have children, I don't do it enough. I don't do what my father did to me. And my father talked business probably purposely in front of me and, and, you know, you don't know what seeds are going to take with, with children, but I, I just picked up all these things at the dinner table and here and there. And I guess I had no choice but to be an entrepreneur because I just, that's all we did. That's all we talked about. Sort of a natural environment in which you flourished, right? I would imagine if the conversation around the dinner table was always about landing a great job and benefits and all the things that probably happen at most dinner tables, I would have saw it. But that I, I don't think landing a job ever came up in one conversation, ever. Well, I grew up in a family of two uh, history professors, and I ended up studying history. So I guess there is something to that environment. So one of the interesting themes I discovered is that throughout your life, you've had points where individuals stepped in at the right time to steer you in the right direction. And you talk about these quite a bit, about the mob boss who, uh, who introduced you to the pool cleaning business in Queens. Um, to the professor at Cornell who uh, inspired you to apply a fourth time and to get accepted, uh, to the businessman um, who uh, encouraged you to build a career at, at, on Wall Street. What do you think drew these people to step into your life just at the right time um, when you needed the most? It can't be that miraculously all these elders, let's call them elders, advisors, showed up exactly like it can't be that I'm more lucky than somebody else. And so what it must be. It has to be that I'm not afraid to ask for help. I always had an affinity towards older people. Even when I was like five and six years old, the teenagers next door, like they could give me more value than other five and six year olds. <laughs> so I just, I just, I leaned towards older and more wise. As you asked the question, I think like I went above and beyond for that neighbor of mine who was the mob boss. My dad taught me that too. My dad 
my dad recognized and taught me and, and my sister that the way to succeed in life and kind of pull yourself out of the neighborhood was to find those successful people, get close to them, and figure out how you could add value to their life. And he probably reiterated that hundreds of times, and so then it became instinctual. And one of the great ways to get close to somebody is to ask questions and ask for help and then provide value to them and take their advice. And so, you know, I probably did it with hundreds of, of elders and six or seven of them helped me, you know, tremendously. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's amazing to be in that position, or certainly as you, as you described, um, it seems like you, you set the stage to, to be able to get that sort of help along the way. So I actually discovered a mutual acquaintance a classmate of mine from our alma mater, Cornell University, who actually worked for you at Spartan for nearly five years. And he described you to me as a force of nature. And he said you had sort of the Steve Jobs-like quality about you. I guess there are worse things than being compared to Steve Jobs as a business guy. But what that tells me is that you're someone who has a really clear vision for what you want, and you will stop at nothing until you get it. Is that an accurate reflection of you as a business person? 100% accurate. And even if it's a negative, by the way, it is 100% accurate. And I read somewhere recently, I, I assume it's true that when they look at monetarily successful people, what they find is that they're less concerned what other people think about them. And they're more concerned with achieving results and just getting to the finish line. Now that that could be overreaching. You, you might find yourself invading the Ukraine, right? If, you're, if, it, if it goes too far. <laughs> But, yeah. but but when I think about like 5 a.m. in the morning in my house and I have a really clear vision that human beings need to exercise every single day and the whole family is going to be pissed off when I start playing music and turn the lights on, I really don't care. What I care <laughs> about, what I care about is that we achieve the mission, that they're healthy and that they do the work. And so, yeah, I think in that sense, then I'm, I'm a force of nature, much to the chagrin of everybody around me at times, but my heart's in the right place. Has there ever been a point where you said, okay, I've pushed a bit too far? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> but you forgive yourself every morning. Yeah, I'm, le I'm learning to be better. About, like my wife is like, hey, listen, with our daughters, you know, could you just rub their back when you wake them up? And it's like, I don't have time. I mean, it's going to sound terrible. I don't have time to like schmooze in the morning. We got to get up. We got to get the lights on. Like we're going to be late. We got stuff to do. Let's go, guys. My 13-year-old my this morning was like schlepping around. And I, I thought, gee, it's getting late for school. What's going on? And my wife was trying to explain, well, we moved to a new place and she doesn't have a bunch of friends yet. And so she's not happy about it. And I said, you know, Catherine... And they, and they already saw, you know, the frowns were coming on their face. They knew where it was going to go. And I said, you know, I, I did a podcast yesterday with a 80-year-old Russian woman named Babushka. And Babushka got ripped out of her apartment in Latvia in, like when she was eight years old and, and banished to northern Siberia, 5,000 miles away, where she lived in a commune away from her parents. And they were, they were so overrun with cats that... Her job was to drown kittens every morning at eight, at eight years old. And I said, I don't think she was ever upset if they moved to a new place. Like, I think we could get over whatever you're experiencing right now. And sure enough, that was not, my message did not go over well. Yeah, force of nature, I guess. Well, it's funny because um, one of the uh, people that worked on the production of your latest TV program, which we'll get to in a moment, had this to say. He said, Joe isn't a hugger. He's not warm and fuzzy. And while he doesn't dish out a whole lot of compliments, he's a damn good team player. Does that sound uh, accurate? That was nice. Listen, I'll, I'll take 
a bullet for you and I'm in the fight with you and I could I could be better on the warm and fuzzy part. My wife makes up for that. She's she's warm and fuzzy. I'm not yeah, I mean life is just too short. I saw you know, my dad died at a young age, my mom died at a young age. I saw a lot of people go to jail for twenty five plus years. Life is so short. I'm just not great at warm and fuzzy. But you've built a team around you, right? Who makes up for it, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I would view it as a weakness if you said, hey, Joe, your team is really warm and fuzzy. Hopefully they're not. <laughs> How do you think you've evolved as an entrepreneur over the 35 years in which you've been building businesses? I've definitely evolved. And I was even worse in the areas we were just discussing, which was uh, head down, blinders on, work, 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 work. And I'm learning I'm learning. It's going to be a continual learning process, how to spend more time. It's just, it's just not scalable if you don't spend more time with the teams and explain the vision. An example would be, hey, guys, uh, we got to cut the budget here. We just got to do it. I don't want to hear it. Just take care of it. As opposed to, hey, guys, if we cut some of the, the expenses in that area, then we could use um, the delta, that, that savings, to uh, deploy it to uh, acquire more consumers and change more lives and achieve our mission. I probably need to spend the extra 15 seconds explaining <laughs> why I wanna do these things as opposed to just doing them. So you could say you've evolved from just do it to let's do it to support our mission. Yeah, let, let's, let's, let's talk about the mission. Let me, let me explain why we're doing this. And, and also I'm learning to just to understand that you can't, you know, I can't just write an email or a Slack or, or have a conversation on a group call and expect everybody to get it. Like it, I'm learning that it takes hundreds of conversations. And, and in all my experience uh, with the military and, and, and um, the Pentagon, and, and surprisingly, they have the same issue. They, you would think they said to me that you could just push down from a general or an admiral um, what it is we want to get done and um, just, doesn't happen. It's got to come from the bottom up. People have to buy in. And I, I've always been frustrated with that process. And I think I'm, I think I'm learning to accept it. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, Spartan Race and Spartan in general as a brand. So I worked in the TV business for almost 20 years. And one of the things I notice is how you use different forms of media to build the Spartan brand. So you've had multiple uh, TV shows at my former employer, NBC, you had Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge back in 2016. You've written several books, uh, Spartan Up, Spartan Fit, The Spartan Way, all of them reflecting this uh, sort of overcoming adversity ethos that the Spartan uh, brand stands for. Was using the media to build awareness about Spartan a conscious strategy on your part, or was it more of an opportunistic approach that seemed to have worked and so you applied it over and over again? I wasn't traditionally trained, right? I've always owned my own business, so I didn't work uh, for Verizon or, or IBM or Google and, and, and learn these things. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning on the fly. And so this concept of top of the funnel, you know, just brand awareness, I did recognize early on that if we were going to stand out and not be a commodity, not just be another one of 50,000 uh, endurance events around the world, we had to build a brand. We had to get traditional media. And so it became my personal mission to knock on doors all day, every day, all around the world, trying to get that to happen. The crazy thing about the CNBC show is that um, that is the one that I really didn't work on. All the others I worked on. And, and um, 
the, the CNBC show was, was just completely random. I had a meeting with the CNBC CEO. I had my kettlebell with me. I dropped it on his desk. We talked. I wasn't really expecting anything out of it. I wasn't looking for a business show. And thankfully, it happened because it's awesome. And I think it's going to achieve exactly what I said, which is top of the funnel brand awareness and, and really separate us from, uh, you know, it's, it's more, more of a mindset than it is a product. So the show you're referring to is called No Retreat Business Bootcamp, and it uh, premiered on, uh, on the Global Business News Channel, CNBC, uh, on March 8th. Tell us a little bit about what the show is about exactly and how the concept developed and evolved. I have a farm. My wife and I have a farm up in Vermont where Spartan was born uh, in a little town called Pittsfield, Vermont. And I've been bringing up people um, for 22 years to the farm, including companies, all the, the Fortune 100s um, uh, come up there, whether it's their teams or, or a bigger group or, or the executives to really, I would say, reboot themselves. And so it's something I've, I've just been doing forever with my own businesses and, and friends' businesses. And, and, um, and so the concept here was, let me go into a company, small or big, uh, we'll quickly ascertain three problems. Every company has three. You're lucky if you only have three problems. Um, I've got 50 problems at all times in, in my own company. Um, but what happens with all of us, uh, because we're human beings, is we, we, we kind of step over the problems every day. Kind of like if there was garbage in front of you and some people pick it up, some don't. Most of us just step over. We walk around it. And it's business as usual. We're very complacent. And you never really take care of the root causes of those problems. So if I could help the founders um, zone in on those three issues, the three big issues, and then bring the team and the problems up to the farm, for lack of a better description, beat the shit out of them until, <laughs> um, until we really uh, are focused on those issues and we no longer step over them or, or walk around them and then send them home, check in on them three months later and, and see if it's worked. And it's awesome because it's, it's exactly what I'm passionate about, business and endurance. It works. I can't even say to my surprise, I, I, I always know, knew it worked, but I didn't think it worked this well. Um, in all the companies we've, we've had on the farm and then we check in, game-changing results. And so that, that's the show in a, in a nutshell. My wife thinks we, you know, we've watched a sneak peek at the show. We think it's awesome. My wife is a little frustrated um, because I'm screaming a lot in the show. And she's like, I, I can't handle any more of you. Um, <laughs> it would have been nice if maybe you took a different approach with the people on the farm since it's on international TV. But um, so that's the only negative as, as my wife is telling me. Was there ever a situation in the show where you felt like, wow, this is not going well, this is not going to come out well, whatever it is that's happening here in front of me. Well, the producers and, and CNBC um, had to wrangle me a hundred times because they thought I was too extreme. <laughs> doctors around and, oh my God, we're going to cancel the show if you push them any further. And I had to deal with that. And I was like, guys, I've been doing this for 22 years to other people, 30 years to myself. I know what I'm doing. Uh -huh. Relax. And that, that's the reason the world is in the shape it's in. Everybody's gotten so damn soft. But ultimately, I, I was able to push people to breaking points, which is, which is great. And ultimately, they left the experience feeling like they were closer together as a team and as an organization than they were before they got in there. Not only, I mean, that's just, that, that's just a, a, a result that's going to come. You know, whenever you do hard things together, you, you build an unbreakable bonds. But every company, any individual, come, like that happens. We go to war together. 
But also the other problems were highlighted and we dove into them in a, in a physical and mental way, uh, uh, so much so that they'll never, they'll never not pay attention to that issue again. They have PTSD related to it. <laughs> All right. So hopefully a very impactful show. I look forward to seeing it myself and to, uh, to seeing the, the feedback from it. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about something that's very close to my heart, which is international business, global expansion. It's fair to say the Spartan has become a global brand, right? You've got races in something like 40 plus countries. Um, and at least one of your uh, new brands in the portfolio, which I think you added via investment, uh, La Ruta, um, actually was created in Costa Rica, right? So it's got an international uh, background. How did you start your move into markets outside the US? I have a friend from Slovakia. And um, very early on, when I was building the brand, I recognized that this brand, this product and service that we sell has an issue in the sense that if we don't get to market first and our competitor gets to market first and the people that are potential customers or customers um, go to our competitor, it's going to be incredibly expensive and, and, and maybe impossible to convert them to our, let's call it a religion, right? Yeah. Like, like they, if, they, if they study Judaism and then I showed up with Catholicism, it was going to be a really tough sell. I needed to get my flag planted first in those markets. But how the hell were we going to do that when we were underfunded just in the United States alone? How could we do it? And um, I had a friend in Slovakia and I said, could you help bring this brand to Slovakia? And I, my thinking was that it was Eastern Europe. If we failed there, it wasn't going to hurt the brand globally. It wasn't a market that many uh, other brands would be chasing, and it worked. And, and it turned out that, as I suspected, Eastern Europeans are amazing, um, and they became very creative, and they invented things that I might not have invented. And so that we were actually doing the reverse innovation. We were learning stuff in, in Slovakia, and then we went from Slovakia to other parts of Eastern Europe, you know, Hungary, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Poland, Romania, and um, then we were in France, and then we were in the UK, and then we were in Canada. And you know, I wish I could tell you it was really well planned and thought out. And we had a great strategy, but I, my whole thing was just keeping the wheels from falling off the bus. Um, the customers really built the business and helped us expand to all these markets. And then, and then I picked my family up and I moved. And I, and I moved every year. I moved to a new region of the world, a new country which a lot of entrepreneurs might not be willing to do, and I get it. But I thought, how the hell am I going to get into Asia? How am I going to make sure the Chinese don't just steal this brand? And uh, so we'll just move there and we'll figure it out. And uh, we moved to Japan and we moved to Singapore and we moved to Vancouver and we, we were everywhere. And how many different countries did you live in under this kind of Spartan umbrella? Part of the reason my 13-year-old was losing her mind this morning, I think in the last six years, we lived in like six different places. So um, she's not... She's not thrilled about that, but she'll thank me later when she realizes how valuable that whole experience was. Was there any market in particular that either didn't accept or or was taking longer to than you wanted to accept the Spartan ethos, the Spartan concept? Funny enough, if you and I were sitting down at a restaurant and this was early in the process, the one country I think you and I would both agree on where this would take off right away would be Japan because Ninja Warrior comes from Japan. And so, and so it was obvious to me that Japan would be a layup. It'd be easier than Slovakia or the UK or anywhere I needed to go, even though it wasn't English speaking. 
I actually held traditional focus groups in, in Japan. I did all the things that Harvard Business School tells you to do when you're going to. So what, you market. put mud in the middle of a, of, a, of a skyscraper in Tokyo or what? <laughs> we did videos, we brought people into room. We did everything that HBS um, tells you to do. And all the results, all the feedback we got was this would never work in Japan. I couldn't get anybody to bite. I couldn't get people to work for me. It just didn't make sense to them. I was shocked. So we moved to Japan. We moved to Tokyo because I said, it's impossible. Something is wrong. And um, I was there for one day, literally the first day. And I, I'm in Japan. We're trying to figure out how to eat. And um, I get a lunch with a guy from Australia who speaks English and he's a trainer. And I'm having lunch with him and he says, how could I help you? I said, I'm trying to find somebody that could you know, I got to get a location, somebody that could kind of navigate, speaks Japanese. He said, I wish I could help you. I really don't know. I don't think so. You know, and this was an English speaking, kind of looked like you and I, yeah. right? And, um, and he couldn't help. And then about three hours later, he texts me and he says, I just spoke to a woman from Australia who knows of you and the brand. She needs to meet you immediately. She would love to help you bring this brand into Japan. First day I was there. And, um, and she was a force of nature. She is a force of nature. And, and before you know it, we, we were on a U.S. Army base in Japan, um, sold out in uh, five hours, and, and it worked famously. Fantastic. And did you uh, roll out kind of a franchise-based model uh, in your international markets, or, or do you own those businesses completely? Yeah, we, we partnered. I was afraid of a franchise because it could, it could all of a sudden go off the rails quickly. So I decided to uh, bring local partners all over the world that understand how to get permits, that understand how to talk to the local folks, that understand how to navigate. And then um, we would work closely with those partners. Um, so, so more of a joint venture, if you would, than a, than a franchise. And how do you see your international expansion strategy evolving? It seems to me like you've made a decision in the last couple of years to start expanding your portfolio of brands in different areas of, of endurance sports. Is that part of that strategy? Well, I mean, the way you could look at it is we have global distribution across 45 countries. And so let's put more products through that, through those channels, through that international channel. We want to be the Louis Vuitton of hard stuff. <laughs> That's quite a description. The Louis Vuitton of hard stuff. Okay. Yeah. And if it's hardcore and it's challenging and it's transformational, we want it to be in our house of brands. And so is there a, a vision for how many of these brands you want to build? I think you have currently have six with Spartan Race. Yeah, I mean, again, if you, if, if you and I owned a giant Olympic swimming pool, an indoor Olympic swimming pool in a neighborhood where people came and paid membership, um, you would imagine that we would have, you know, the breaststroke going on, freestyle, backstroke, maybe even some water polo. So different disciplines all within this idea of, of doing hard stuff. When we acquire a brand or build a brand, it's, it's just got to have it's got to have legs. It's got to be able to go global. It's got to be scalable. And it's got to fit within the portfolio. I go through the life cycle myself as a human being. And there were, you know, decades where I wanted to do a trail running or decades where I wanted to do a triathlon or decade like so. So you're kind of getting people at various stages of their interest in, in hard stuff. Yeah. So Joe, you and I share a common connection to Cornell. You graduated in 1990. I graduated in 92. So I think we actually shared a, a few years on campus. 
Um, I don't believe we ever met, uh, though it's likely we probably uh, waited in line together in, in front of one of the hot bars at the time, Roloffs or Dunbar's or the Palms, or I'm not sure where you, uh, where you hung out. Um, I know you moved to Ithaca from Queens uh, sometime in your late teens, which put Cornell literally at your doorstep. Um, when did you first set your sights on attending Cornell? I didn't know what college was. I, I grown up in Queens and come from a family that didn't go to college. It wasn't something that was being pushed or talked about. Entrepreneurship was, so it was not on my list. When I was graduating high school, I was about three or four months away from graduating and heading back to Queens. My parents were divorced. Mom lived in Ithaca. Dad lived in, um, in Queens. A friend of mine whose father was a professor at the Cornell Hotel School, Professor Arbell, his son John said to me, hey, Joe, we should, we should go to Cornell or my dad could get us in. And I said, oh, that's interesting. It sounds like something from the neighborhood that I would have heard. You know, <laughs> we got a guy. We got a guy, and, exactly. So that it, it intrigued me and it you know, got me an interview which just being able to tell my family back in Queens that I had an interview at Cornell was like, I didn't even need to attend the college. That alone was a big deal. <laughs> so I, we got the interview. I, I bought a suit and I went and got interviewed and, and the interview went really well. And with the connection, I figured we were, we were a shoe in and I had to edit my plans because the next four years I was going to be at Cornell. And sure enough, neither of us got accepted. His father couldn't pull those strings. My fate was sealed. I was going back to Queens. However, I learned that you could actually take some extramural classes, continuing education at Cornell. Uh, folks that graduate could learn about other things, whatever, and that maybe if we took some extramural classes and we did well, we could make a really good argument to the admissions folks that, look, we could handle the workload. Maybe you should reconsider us. We both decided this is what we were going to do. And by then I had a business already in Queens that I was going to go back and run for the summer after high school. So I said to my friend, look, maybe I should go to St. John's University in Queens during the summer, take a class or two, learn how to study because my SAT scores were terrible. I wasn't really much of a student. Plus, I don't want to be behind when we do get accepted. It was already uh, I was already convincing myself we would be we would be in in January. Uh, and he said, why would we do that? He said, if we're going to buckle down in September, let's party all summer. We'll go to Vegas and then we'll buckle down when we get back in September. And, and so that was the beginning of me understanding this idea of delayed gratification. I chose Queens. I went to St. John's. I ran my business. He went out to Vegas and partied. We came back. We both did really well. In our first semester, I worked my butt off and neither of us got accepted again. Uh -huh. Didn't work. He pulled uh, the ripcord. He went out to UNLV at such a good time that summer in, in Vegas. I attempted another semester because I really did enjoy it. It was leveling up my game to pushing me in a really hard way, making me uncomfortable to be in an Ivy League school, in a college in general, but an Ivy League school, no less. And I applied a second time and, and didn't get accepted. Did it a third time, didn't get accepted. I was tapping out. Clearly, I wasn't cut out for this. They weren't going to accept me. And my mom, who taught yoga meditation in uh, Ithaca, said, hey, I have a student, Professor Anita Racine. I don't know what she does, but before you leave, my mom didn't want her son to go back to Queens, right? Yeah. Um, before you leave, before you pack it in, go meet her. Maybe she could help. Sat down with Professor Anita Racine. She looked at my, weren't even transcripts, but the grades I had over the last three semesters. She said, do you like textiles? I didn't really know what textiles were. She said, because I run the textile department at the School of Human Ecology. And we have 92 women in the department, um, students, but we don't have any men. We're trying to develop a little diversity. I said, I love textiles. So it's one of the few moments uh, where being a man was an advantage of building diversity. <laughs> huge advantage, huge advantage. And so myself, and then eventually uh, one of my best friends who, who uh, was in the textile business in Hong Kong, uh, a gentleman named John Fung, we both ended up in the department with 92 girls. 
and we learned uh, everything from designing dresses to development of, of certain fibers and, and things that took more chemistry than I wanted to take. But and how'd that go over with your buddies in Queens? <laughs> well, it was good. I mean, there were but funny enough there were some textile businesses back in Queens, and I didn't tell anybody. I was just I was at college. I didn't tell anybody what I was actually doing at college, but um, but it was great. It changed my whole life. And if I had to do it again, I, w- I would do it again. Well, I guess it's another reflection of persistence, right? I mean, you uh, you took four attempts and you got there in the end and ended up uh, graduating. What sticks out about your time at Cornell? Was there a particular course or a professor or, or some experience that contributed to your kind of journey as a as an entrepreneur? Well, Professor Anita Racine changed my whole life for sure. Professor Ben Daniel, the entrepreneurship class, at the Johnson School, what was then called the Johnson School. The landscape, the clock tower, Live Slope, uh, walking from downtown every single day all the way up to human ecology, just <laughs> feeling academic and cerebral. I didn't go out very much. The only times I was in Ruloff's legitimately, I worked there. Uh-huh. I didn't go out very much because I was fighting so hard to get good grades to be accepted. And then, you know, after four semesters, I was just, I was in, in that thing. I lived off campus. So I can't say, oh, these parties or this or that were exciting because I, I just wasn't part of that. I love work. I love hard work. It was hard, it was really hard work for me. I met a friend there that um, an older gentleman who's still a great friend lives there, was part of that whole entrepreneurship program, met him for a moment. And he helped he helped keep me at Cornell and, and he helped guide me eventually to get to Wall Street. So again, I met some of those those old wise advisors there. Well, I can tell from your voice you've got fond memories of it. I actually wanted to ask you about something that I, I personally find extremely difficult to accept, which is there is this whole wave now in this entrepreneurship circle of how college is useless. You know, you see people on Instagram with their Lambos and they're saying, well, I didn't need a college degree to get this uh, car and and so on. And there's people, Gary Vaynerchuk is a good example of this, who really goes out of his way to explain how college is useless and education is unnecessary and so that. It personally drives me nuts because I think it really undervalues not just education, but certainly the value of, of attending a place like Cornell with extra benefits pedigree. What's your view of that? How much is going to college important to be a successful entrepreneur? And how, much, how important was going to Cornell important for you to become a successful entrepreneur? Changed my life. And I, I think if you say college isn't important, that's like saying you want to be really fit, but you don't want to go to the gym. Like it's an easy sell when you tell people they don't have to do hard work and they're going to be wildly successful. For me, running a business, which is what, what I was doing while I was at school, was invaluable. And I couldn't have repeated what it did for me. Could you make college better for would-be entrepreneurs? Absolutely. If if you force them to run a, a tiny little business so that what they're doing every day, they understand the connection between the things they're learning, which I understood, and I was able to apply these lessons directly. Maybe there should be a small business program for, for entrepreneurs where they're they're ru- actually running a business while they're at school and they're applying all the things they learn. That That's what I was able to do, and it was invaluable. But um, just the credibility, just, you know, when I, I become really good friends with some very high level people, uh, multi-billionaires, and I, they went to Cornell. As a matter of fact, if I have five incredibly successful people, multi-billionaires, right? Like 70% of them went to Cornell, one went to Duke, one went to Princeton, like ridiculously successful, top 100 in the world. I wouldn't have those connections because the, the common ground we have is, oh, Joe went to Cornell. He must be okay. Yeah. Right? Like in the neighborhood, oh, the, you know, you would say, oh, that guy went to jail. He didn't rat on anybody. He must be okay. <laughs> in the business world, it's like, it's, it's a litmus test. So is it easier to not go to college? Sure. There's a lot of things that are easy. That doesn't make it right. You need to learn how to learn. Now, if you're a genius and you've got an amazing product and you, you want to take two years before you go to, you know, to college to, to test out, go for it. You, you might be one of the point 
0.000001% that pull it off. Everybody else, go to college. Yeah, and I think it also just uh, supports my principle, which is that you know being smart and dedicated and learning is not the opposite of hustling and working hard. The two can can really complement each other and together they can lead you to being a successful entrepreneur. You obviously have incredible experience in building various businesses in various stages. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned that somebody who has an idea for business or is a working business but needs to scale it? What are some things that they should keep in mind to be more likely to be successful? Well, there's three things I got. My, my first three business lessons outside of the thousands of business lessons I got from my father, the first three business lessons I got from that, that boss of uh, the banana crime family when I was you know, 12 years old, I think are really applicable um, to business. They've, they've kind of kept me um, in, in check all these years. And I think, I think you should all use them, which is uh, number one, uh, on time is late, right? Like if you're gonna be here and meet me at 8 a.m., you better be here at 7.45. That's, that's like brushing your teeth. Don't, don't show up um, on time, on time is late. Number two, if I'm going to pay you to clean the swimming pool, you better go above and beyond. You better clean the, the shed. You better straighten up the lawn furniture, clean the windows. Even though you're not getting paid to do those extra things, it's not in your supposed contract. Go above and beyond. Make yourself invaluable. And then number three, and this is really not intuitive for a business person, an entrepreneur, would-be entrepreneur, don't ask for money. If you're valuable, you'll get paid because the customer can't live without you. And so um, when you take that approach, business becomes easy. I mean, it's really, that, it's really that simple. Simple as running for 23 kilometers and going over 30 obstacles to, uh, to uh, exactly. uh, an outcome. Fantastic. Joe, listen, thank you so much for, for our conversation. I, I really found it uh, extremely inspiring personally, very uh, thoughtful and helpful to uh, all of the uh, entrepreneurs out there listening today. So thank you very much for joining me on Line Stories. And to everybody out there who listened, hope you got inspired again and uh, learned some of the ingredients of building a successful global business. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends.